You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Privacy isn't dying, privacy isn't dead, privacy is really important, it helps us be people and citizens and members of, of, of our economy, and it is about power, it is up for grabs, and we need better rules to deal with it. Hello everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a Pennsylvania court case relating to privacy on Wi-Fi networks. I look at the Federal Trade Commission's investigation into U.S. Internet providers. And later in the show, author and professor Neil Richards is here to discuss his new book, Why Privacy Matters. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's jump into some stories. Why don't you start things off for us this week? So I have a really interesting court case that was decided by the Supreme Court of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hmm. I was alerted to this case from a couple of uh, sources. One of them is the old reliable Gabriel Maller, um, who posts just really interesting state court cases, appeals court cases on Twitter. Hmm. Um, And then I also saw the ACLU uh, write a brief about this case. And it has to do with privacy protections on wireless internet networks or or Wi-Fi networks. And whether law enforcement can access information about who's connected to a Wi-Fi network without a warrant. Hmm. So this comes from a criminal case. So there was an incident at Moravia College in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. where two men posed as campus police officers, went to a dorm, and basically shook down a couple of unsuspecting college students, uh, told them, you know, uh, we're campus police, you got to give us $1,000 and some of your marijuana or whatever. Hmm. Uh, and these uh, kids reported it to campus police. Campus police reported it to the Bethlehem Police Department. And the police department asked the IT team at Moravia College to do the equivalent of a tower dump. Um, basically, you know, uh, figure out who was connected to the Wi-Fi network in that particular dorm when the crime was committed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they did that tower dump, so to speak. Uh, and they identified three people who were connected to that network who didn't live in that dorm. Uh, two of them were women, and they knew that this crime was committed by a man. Mm. Um, so that left Mr. Duncans, Alkeon Duncans, who was uh, the accused criminal in this case. Okay. Uh, so he was charged uh, with robbery. He was convicted, and he seeks to suppress the evidence that came from uh, the fact that he was connected to this Wi-Fi network. Hmm. So there are a couple of key factors uh, at, at play here. The first is that 
he agreed to the Moravia College Computing Resources Policy when he first logged into the Wi-Fi. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Big mistake, uh, Mr. Duncans. <laughs> Trapped by the EULA. <laughs> uh, as so many people are. Right, um, right. So if you actually read what he agreed to, it's pretty clear. It basically explicitly says you have no reasonable expectation of privacy in regards to any data documents, electronic mail messages, or other computer files, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, that are on this network. Okay. Um, obviously, he didn't read it, but he uh, very well could have, and he should have been aware that uh, he had assented to that policy when he logged into the Wi-Fi network for the first time. Of course, as we know, you know, you log in once, and then every time you return to that location, your computer automatically logs you in. Right. So that's one interesting aspect of the, uh, of the case. He's arguing that there have been a lot of cases in the past where just because somebody agrees to a EULA doesn't mean they forfeit their reasonable expectation of privacy. Hmm. Uh, so in a lot of different circumstances, you know, if people don't meaningfully assent to something or if an institution like a college makes a show of authority where you really don't have any meaningful choice, where it's if you ever want to use the internet at our university— you know, you have to agree to these terms and conditions. Uh, and in order to be a college student here, you kind of need access to Wi-Fi. So mm. you really don't have much of a choice. Okay. Uh, so he's arguing that the fact that there was this policy shouldn't be dispositive in this case. Hmm. Then he's making a broader constitutional argument saying that this type of collection of, you know, trying to identify which people at a particular time were connected to a Wi-Fi network invokes the kind of all-encompassing search that we saw in the Carpenter case. So it's a search that's invasive, that's comprehensive, that could potentially reveal private personal things about an individual. You know, if you, for example, just taking it in the universe of Moravia College, you could find out whether this person went to student health services, Mm -hmm. whether this person, um, you know, went to somebody else's dorm, Uh, That's, you know, potentially private information that you could find out just by warrantlessly accessing Wi-Fi networks. Hmm. So he's, uh, the uh, defendant in this case is trying to say that this is a Fourth Amendment violation. There should be a warrant required when the government seeks to collect information on a person's movements Hmm. uh, or their historical movements. And that's, he's trying to analogize it to cell site location information. Interesting. So this case made it up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and uh, they decided the case on the relatively narrow grounds that he signed on to this agreement Hmm. when he agreed to those policies. Uh, He had a choice not to. Uh, He could have just used, you know, whatever the uh, AT&T or— Right, right. That's what I was thinking. He could have used his mobile data. Use your mobile data. Connect to a mobile tower. Mm -hmm. Probably would have been a good idea before you decide to commit crimes in a dorm room to just, you know, disconnect from that Wi-Fi network. Now, help help me remember here. Suppose he had used his mobile data and police wanted that information from the mobile provider. Would they have needed a, a warrant in that case? So it's pretty unclear. In most cases, you don't need a warrant to do a tower dump. Hmm. Um, but a tower dump for um, you know a, a mobile carrier is going to reveal a lot less information relevant to an individual criminal than a Wi-Fi dump of a single dorm room. Mm-hmm. So we're probably you know talking about the difference between hundreds of unique identifiers versus you know when you're dumping a Wi-Fi in a three-story dorm room. 
it's just not that many people, and then yeah. you can easily identify which people were not in the building. I see. Um, so, you know, in some cases, if it's not overbroad, you can do that that type of, of tower dump, although okay. um, there's kind of some mixed jurisprudence on that. Hmm. Basically, the court, the um, Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, you agreed to this EULA. Uh, you had the chance to read it. You had the chance to disconnect from it. This is something that was voluntary. And that's what distinguishes it, I think, from the Carpenter case. Is in the Carpenter case, this person was tracked based on his location information, which the government can get access to simply because this person turned on his or her device, right? Mm-hmm. It automatically pings a cell phone tower. Uh, so just by turning on your device, that is the single voluntary action a person has taken that would allow the government to track, you know, 10 years worth of uh, worth of their personal movements, right? Right, right. Uh, here, you know, it's just not – there were several layers of voluntary actions that the criminal defendant took that I think forfeited that reasonable expectation of privacy. Hmm. So it's agreeing to the terms of service to log on to that Wi-Fi in the first place, continuing to be logged on to that Wi-Fi, you know, not choosing to disconnect when you went into that building. I think you could reasonably say that that was a relinquish uh, relinquishment of the reasonable expectation of privacy. This court didn't go into kind of the deeper carpenter issues of whether Wi-Fi dumps are equivalent to uh, historical cell site location information. Right. The ACLU had tried to make an argument that they are substantially similar. I don't buy it. I don't think they're substantially similar just because of that element of voluntariness. Uh, But this case was decided on the narrow grounds of, hey, you agreed to this policy— you had a chance. You you know you knew full well what the university was collecting. It said that you once you log on to this network, you don't have a reasonable expectation of of privacy in the data that traverses this network. Mm-hmm. Um, that belongs to Moravia College, uh, and because you know this defendant didn't take the opportunity to log out of that Wi-Fi network, uh, he had no reasonable expectation of privacy, and therefore there was no search. There was no Fourth Amendment event. Hmm. Um, so I, I do think this case was decided correctly, um, even though I think, you know, there are some significant privacy concerns. Are we going to have these warrantless Wi-Fi dumps, you know, in scenarios where the terms of service are less clear? Yeah. Or, you know, when the terms of service aren't as readily available to an average user, or as the ACLU uh, tried to argue in their brief, when people are using public Wi-Fi networks. Well, so I, Yeah, I was thinking about, like, you hear about these systems that, um, uh, say, like a big department store is right. using. You know, let's say you and I go shopping at Macy's or something like that. <laughs> God and, forbid, and, yeah. <laughs> especially during the holidays. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they track you as you move around the store, and they keep track of, like, what did you stop and spend time looking at and things like that. And And you don't necessarily have to log into anything. It's just... Uh, because your device is always sort of pinging out and saying, hey, who are you? Here's who I am. Who are you? You know, um, and you're not necessarily, uh, other than those attempts at handshaking, right. where your device has a device ID that it's sending out into the world and saying, here's who I am. Who are you? And yeah. it's saying, hey, here's who I am. Who are you? That's what it's using to sort of track your movements. In that case, uh, what's your view on that? See, I think that's different because— you know, this criminal defendant in this case had a lot of opportunities to be aware that he was relinquishing 
his expectation of privacy and the information. Right. And to to log off, to mm-hmm. get off that network, to discontinue uh, putting his his own information at risk. Whereas in a situation like the one you're describing, it isn't really voluntary. The only voluntary action, just like in Carpenter, was turning on your device. Mm-hmm. And we have to turn on our devices. We can't live in modern society without turning on our devices. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing the ACLU mentioned, which I think is a pretty compelling point, is you could see there being some equity concerns here. Hmm. Uh, so there are public Wi-Fi networks that generally poor people, um, you know, minority groups are, are more likely to use. Right. Free Wi-Fi networks. If law enforcement were able to do these types of tower dumps on, you know, the local Xfinity uh, public Wi-Fi network um, and identify which people were in a given area at a a particular time, that would have major Fourth Amendment concerns for a certain subset of individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, More so than other people who have privileges with other accessibility to data. Exactly. Okay. You know, yeah. you know yeah. as opposed to individuals who paid the cable company to set up a Wi-Fi network in their home that's private to them and that's that's password protected. Right, right. Uh, so, you know, that that's a concern as well is that if you were to take the logic of this case, you might extend it and see, you know, these dumps of Wi-Fi networks that uh, could have detrimental consequences on more marginalized groups. Mm-hmm. People are able to buy their way out of that scrutiny. Exactly. Yeah. I have just, I have some sympathy for that. I have less sympathy when you're on a college campus, you know, you have to know that they're monitoring you, that they're monitoring your... <laughs> if you're going to do crimes, leave your phone at home. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if there's one thing people can learn from listening to this show. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like Jay Leno here talking about... Stu- I, I love stupid criminals. Um, <laughs> right. But really, just log out of the Wi-Fi network before you commit a crime in a particular dorm room. It's not that difficult. You had the opportunity to do so. A college is a very confined institution. Right. Um, And, you know, Uh, for those of of us who have been to college, it's not really a, like, it's not really a democracy. The dean can make decisions about (laughs) punishments and, you know. Once again, I'd just like to say that the CyberWire legal team would like to say that uh, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. (laughs) Yeah, say that that several times, uh, in fact. But I think we can safely say (laughs) that no matter whether you – well, let's just say – Whatever plans you have as it relates to college dorm rooms, <laughs> just disconnect from the Wi-Fi network. That's right. the lesson in this case. Yeah. I think that's kind of the lesson that the court is trying to give to this criminal. Yeah. You had your chance. Don't, you know, don't come begging us to change Fourth Amendment jurisprudence because you were too stupid yeah. to log out of uh, out of the Wi-Fi. Yes, trying mm-hmm. to, to get out of this on a technicality. Uh, yeah, knock it off. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, of course, all of these criminals try and get out of this on a technicality because he very clearly did commit the crime. Yeah. You know, we didn't go into into it, but there was a lot of evidence that showed that he was the one who shook down these poor kids for a thousand bucks and their stash of marijuana. <laughs> uh, but yes, that's the broader lesson in this case. You know, I, I would worry about the slippery slope, which is what I think groups like the ACLU EFF, that's why they submitted friend of the court briefs in this case. Mm. Um, but in terms of the narrow issue of this guy on a college campus, I don't have much sympathy for him, yeah. frankly. 
All right. Well, we will have a link to that case uh, in the show notes there if you want to dig into it. Certainly uh, is an interesting one. Uh, my story this week comes from the folks over at CyberScoop. This is an article written by Tonya Riley, uh, and it's titled, Internet Providers Fail to Inform Americans About How They Use Sensitive Data for Advertising, FTC Says. Uh, and uh, basically, this article outlines a study that was recently released by the Federal Trade Commission, and they started looking at some of the major ISPs, and they they started this study back in 2019. They were looking at uh, AT&T, Verizon, Xfinity, T-Mobile, uh, Google Fiber, which this article says covers about 98% of the mobile internet market. Um And the upshot here is that despite these providers saying that they – that we take your privacy very seriously, Mm -hmm. uh, they are actually selling a lot of this information to third parties, Uh, location data. uh, They're selling information um, based on interests, people's browsing data, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, And the FTC is saying that uh, they have some real concerns about this. Um, interesting things in this article, uh, that I think are worth mentioning here is that it points out that the FTC actually sort of has limited jurisdiction over the ISPs and they would have to team up with the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, to really put policies in place here. It's always the territorial concerns of these agencies and these uh, (laughs) obscure rules that Congress has created that prevent, you know, the average person from uh, seeing some relief from these uh, deceptive practices. Right, right. This article points out that uh, in 2015, the FCC reclassified ISPs as telecommunications services, allowing the agency to oversee privacy issues. However, Wait for it, Ben. That was rolled back in 2017 <laughs> under Republican leadership. Um, you know, because, because that that was not a policy they agreed they agreed with, and certainly within their right when they're in power to do so. Uh, but interesting um, that what it's going to take to come at this, and the FCC has said uh, that uh, they're taking a close look at this. So, what do you make of this, Ben? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess taking a close look at it is is always a start. Some of these practices are very concerning. And the fact is we're talking about the big providers here. So yeah. they stay, they didn't just study, you know, some random small company. It was AT&T, Verizon, Xfinity, T-Mobile, et cetera. Yeah. That covers 98% of the mobile internet market. Right. Uh, so, you know, we're talking about uh, ISPs that, that almost everybody has a relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um, so the study revealed some pretty, uh, common but disturbing collection practices. So, uh, companies gathering data that wasn't necessary to provide internet services, um, like, uh, collecting specific web browser data just to serve up certain types of advertisements. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there's this practice that's called digital redlining where, um, people take a profile of individuals based on their race or based on their sex, um, where they won't see certain types of ads for housing or jobs because they've been identified with these more marginalized groups. Hmm. That's certainly uh, disturbing. That might cut off people's access to, you know, things that would lead to to upward mobility. Right, right. Um, so there's a new housing community going up nearby, but because I'm, I've been categorized as a certain group, I won't even see the ad for it, may not even know it's there. Exactly, exactly. Um, And that has major implications in terms of um, our 
civil rights laws, uh, discriminatory practices, et cetera. And that's certainly something with these unfair practices that the FTC has the uh, opportunity to look at. Yeah. And then sharing real-time location data with third parties. Um, and, you know, we've talked about this a million times, but those are potentially sensitive details. Uh, when you're sharing location services, they mentioned this article, you know, if you visit a rehab center uh, or even if you drop your children off at daycare, daycare that's information that third parties are collecting. Once third parties collect it, we know that in most circumstances, the government can access it uh, mm -hmm. if they want to or if they need to. Uh, so, you know, this is just a, a major uh, wake-up call that user privacy with the ISPs that we all use um, is certainly lacking. Uh, and we need some type of enforcement mechanism to make sure that these companies don't use these deceptive practices. Yeah, yeah. It does. The article mentions that you know, these companies have some options for opting out, but they are, as you would expect, uh, cynically, I suppose, hard to find, hard to use, not the default. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, most people don't know or don't have the time or resources to understand how to fully opt out. And we shouldn't expect people to jump through a million different hoops to protect their own privacy rights mm -hmm. or, or constitutional rights. You know, it, you shouldn't have to have literacy in, you know, uh, online communications or internet service providers to protect your personal information. Uh, that's just not, I think, a, a standard that we want to apply. And that's why we have these regulatory agencies. Right. It is frustrating that the FTC was the one that commissioned this study, uh, but they can only see internet privacy practices but not voice services. You know, so that does limit their jurisdiction here. Uh, so as you said at the beginning here, they'd have to partner with the FCC, which just makes things more difficult. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the FTC has different political leadership or different priorities uh, as the FCC. Um, you know, oftentimes just based on the membership of these groups, when certain members were appointed, you know, they might just be very ideologically different. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's meaningful to people like us who study this stuff. Um, but to your average consumer who just wants, you know, AT&T to stop collecting your, uh, location data, mm -hmm. that's not going to be of much relief. Um, you know, so this is something where Congress, uh, they certainly have the power, uh, to step in and propagate regulations, um, you know, we've talked about a million different proposals that have come out of our legislative branch. Mm -hmm. um, they very frequently go into the recycling bin. <laughs> well, and I wonder, is this just, is this another, uh, I guess, data point or, or something that the legislators can latch on to and say, aha, here we go, another, this is, this is, needs to be done. We, Ooh, we, we have we a can, study now. We can no longer delay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's it's positive momentum, maybe? It is. I mean, it's better than if there hadn't been a study. There's something right. tangible <laughs> that, that you can point to. This is where we are. Yeah. I know I'm being cynical here, but it's like, how many inspector general reports have you seen where Congress says, oh, that's very disturbing, and then right. two years later you wake up and, have they done anything about it? No. Right. Um, going to put so, together a, a committee. You know, as I say at the beginning of, of every football season, hope springs eternal. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it only takes 
it only takes one effort, one comprehensive effort to help reverse some of these practices. It would it would have to be part of a, bri- a broader federal data privacy law, um, which is the holy grail that we and, and many stakeholders have been searching for for many years. Yeah, I don't think this is going to be like a bill just to address the concerns that exist um, that were brought up in, in this study. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, a, a report is a start. Having it come from the agency that at least has some regulatory powers is better than if it came from, you know, a, bu- a bunch of uh, ivory tower academics. Right, right. So, right, so right. that's something. Yeah. All right. Well, again, it's uh, from the folks over at CyberScoop. This is written by Tonya Riley. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. We would love to hear from you. If you have a story you would like us to cover or a question you'd like us to answer on the show, you can send us an email. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. All right, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Neil Richards. He is an author, and he is the Koch Distinguished Professor in Law at Washington University School of Law. And his new book is titled Why Privacy Matters. Here's my conversation with Neil Richards. Well, I've been writing and thinking about privacy for about 25 years now. And so I've always imagined that I would, at some point when the time was right, write a book about the privacy in the broadest sense. But I think what really prompted me to write the book specifically was a Uber ride I had in Palo Alto in the spring of 2015. I'd been giving talks on my first book, Intellectual Privacy, which I was quite fond of, but but nobody wanted to talk about the relationships between privacy and the First Amendment. They wanted to talk about whether hackers could get their data, whether they were in control of their data, what happened to all their information that was out there. So I was in an Uber, appropriately enough, driving from my hotel to Stanford Law School, where I was going to give a talk for intellectual privacy. And the taxi, the driver asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I'm a law professor. And then she said, well, what kind of law do you do? And I said, privacy law. And I knew as soon as those words crossed my lips that uh, she was going to say something like, as she did, well, there really is no privacy anymore, is there? And for the next seven minutes, I subjected um, that lovely but unfortunate woman to uh, a, a conversation I'd, I'd started 
telling my wife about is the privacy conversation, the idea that that privacy isn't dying, privacy isn't dead, privacy is really important, it helps us be people and citizens and members of, of, of our economy, and that while privacy isn't dying, it is about power, it is up for grabs, and we need better rules to deal with it. And uh, it was at that moment that I realized I've been having the privacy conversation again that I thought, I probably should write all this down. This, this probably should be what the next book should be about, particularly since people seem to be more interested in that than the book that I was promoting. Well, let, let's dig into that notion that privacy is dead. I mean, my my sense is that certainly in some circles, there's a sense of resignation about that, that uh, privacy is something we've lost control of with these these big uh, social media platforms and the advertising engines Your book makes the point that uh, maybe those notions are premature. Absolutely. Uh, There's there's so much there in your question. Let me me try and take it a piece at a time. So I think there is absolutely resignation and a sense of powerlessness and, and lack of control about our information. The last 25 years have seen an unprecedented extraction of personal data, of, of human information for profit. Uh, largely for the benefit of of a small number of large technology platforms and secondarily for the benefit of a much larger cohort of of data companies and and data brokers. I think people are right to feel a sense of anxiety about the uses that their information is being put to because information confers power and human information confers power over human beings. And that's that's essentially what's happened as we are monitored and tracked and sorted and profiled and nudged and unfortunately increasingly manipulated by our own data and by the data of other people through heavily designed platforms that are the, the sources of, of the exercise of largely corporate, but to some extent, government power as well. I think we tend to think about privacy, and maybe we can talk about this as, as we proceed, about whether data uses are creepy or whether we've, we've, we've lost control. I think those are the wrong frameworks with which to think about human data. I think the best framework to think about privacy, about human information, about data is power. That's why organizations from the NSA to Meta, I guess they're calling themselves this week, to parents deploying baby monitors or find my friends to keep an eye on their kids. That, that's why all of these, these entities collect information. It's to, to advance their interests. And we have a long tradition in Anglo-American law. I'm, I'm an Englishman who's lived most of his life in the United States. Uh, but we can trace this tradition of using rules to restrain power all the way back to King John and the barons on the island in the Thames at Runnymede in 1215. We have a very strong and rich vocabulary for dealing with government power. That's why the Edward Snowden revelations were so resonant. We lack the same vocabulary, the same cultural touch points like George Orwell or the Panopticon for private power. But private power is what we need primarily to constrain in this area. And I think what we need to do are to develop rules that constrain the exercise of information-based private power uh, in socially productive directions to to help what the Europeans call natural persons, human beings like, like you and me. 
Yeah, one of the sections of your book uh, is a theory of privacy as rules. Can you go into that for us some? What exactly are you laying out here? We too often think about privacy as, as, as I mentioned, about creepiness or about control. But if we think about privacy as the degree to which human information is neither known nor used, I think it is true that more information is being collected about human beings. But it's not true that privacy is dead. When I say that it's up for grabs, I mean that new uses of information are being made possible. But that just, from my perspective as a lawyer and a law professor, starts the conversation about what kinds of regulations we should we should have. And so I, when we think about privacy as rules, I think there are, there are four basic insights here. The first, which I've, which I've mentioned, is that privacy is fundamentally about power. That's why Target wants to figure out the, the, the sort of the famous story in, in big data circles, figure out when people are pregnant so they can send them coupons, not because they necessarily want to lose money on on formula or diapers, but they know that if they can figure out when people are pregnant, that's one of the few times in someone's life that their purchasing habits are up for grabs. And so an information-based intervention at that point exerts the power to get them to start shopping at Target. And then the baby comes and they're completely exhausted and unable to, to, to break out of their rut. And so one coupon for $5 of formula can, can lock somebody in, given the power of habit, to be a, a target customer for, for a decade. So, so first, privacy is about power. Second, struggles over privacy are really the struggles over the rules that constrain the power that human information confers. Third, privacy rules of some sort are inevitable. If we, if we were to give some of the platforms what they wanted and not regulate, in a sense, that's a kind of a rule, right? That the information gets to flow, you get to do it. As a lawyer, as a law professor, as someone who thinks about regulation, there really isn't a neutral position on on regulation or not. A decision not to do something, not to pass a privacy statute as Congress has done for the last 25 years, uniquely among all of the advanced democracies in the world, is in a sense a decision to to allow the status quo to, to continue to develop of its own momentum. And so from that perspective, privacy rules of some sort are inevitable. So if we, if we have to have rules of some sort, either by doing something or doing nothing or doing something in between, we should think about what value should animate our rules. And that's really the fourth part of privacy as rules. We should think about privacy not as, a, not as an essence or as, or as a, an intrinsic good in itself, but in instrumental terms. Restrictions on information flow can promote things we want. And we should animate those rules by human values. I offer three in the book. We, can, we could hypothesize a few more. Uh, but basically, I think our privacy rules should promote, first, our ability to develop our identities as humans. Second, our political freedom to figure out what we believe and to act in authentic ways as citizens. And third, notions of consumer protection uh, in the information economy to protect us as, as members of our society, of our economic and social society, so that we can live our lives and trust that the systems we have become integrated in to live our lives, whether it's Google Maps or Amazon or Uber, that we can use them to our benefit without fear of betrayal, that we can, we can trust 
the system of rules we have in our economy rather than having to worry, did I read the privacy policy? Did mm. I did I manage to, to, to read all the fine terms? Do I understand the technology? Because really, I just want to sign up for the Bagel Loyalty Club at Einstein's. Right, right. Which is a which is a real example, actually, from from my life, having you know re- trying to read the privacy policy while my son, uh, you know, j- just wanted his bagel. Oh, you're you're that guy. <laughs> well, I, I'm not normally that guy, but, but professionally, <laughs> as someone who studies privacy, I ha- I have to be that guy some of the time, if right. only to understand what's going on. Right. I'm curious your insights on some of the common misperceptions when it comes to privacy and and why they persist. That's a great question. There are a number of of misperceptions of myths about privacy. I've been writing about them for about 10 years now, and I talk about four or five of them in the book. Um, I think they persist because we haven't been thinking about privacy in the right terms. I think they persist because most people don't want to engage in in deep-seated privacy theory in their daily lives. I mean, I hope they want to engage in just enough privacy theory to to buy and read my book. But, you know, we want to get on with things. We we don't want to to have to question everything all the time because it is because like pri- reading privacy policies, it's exhausting. And another reason I think we have these myths is corporations and governments have an interest in these myths being perpetuated. They have a it advances their interests for the NSA. If we have nothing to hide, we have nothing to fear. It, it advances the interests of, of companies like Facebook and Google if we believe that we should be in control of our personal information. And, and if only we had put the effort in to adjust the privacy dashboard, then we would have had control of our privacy. And really, it's our fault because we didn't go deep into the YouTube privacy settings or we didn't tweak the settings on our Amazon Alexa. And I think that that's ultimately a trap that we're confronted with these data practices, we're given the illusion of control at inopportune times. We fail to do it because we are overwhelmed as consumers, and then we feel it's our fault. And we become not just resigned to the data practice, but we feel a sense of complicity for failure to to adjust our privacy. And I think the best way to to think about the the illusion of, of control is that we all have accounts with with technology companies. We all have passwords. Some people use password managers and put all of their eggs in in one or a small number of baskets. Everybody else tends to write them down on pieces of paper and keep them by their computer. Regardless of the merits of, of that from a data security perspective, we can't remember all of our passwords. If we can't remember all of our passwords, how are we supposed to remember or even adjust a dozen privacy settings for each of those accounts uh, when the interfaces are are constantly changing. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a rigged game that consumers really don't have choice. But companies offering the illusion of choice uh, make us feel complicit in our own disempowerment. And I think we can do better. How can we do better? What can consumers do to uh, to have their feelings? Uh, uh, heard by people who are in a position to make a difference? That's a great question. A lot of the time, books about privacy, books about data security, uh, well-meaning articles in Consumer Reports or Wired will have a, a listicle 
at the end that says 10 things you can do to protect your privacy. I think ultimately all of these fall into, into the control trap. And so in the book, I don't offer a list of things you can do to make your privacy more protected. We'll get into it in Q&As in, in, in book talks. But, but ultimately, I think what we need to do is we need to advocate for baseline human citizen and consumer protective privacy legislation that binds companies and that binds the government. That's what we need. The United States, even though a large chunk of the the large internet platforms, and really virtually all of the large internet platforms of, of any major size outside of China, are headquartered in the United States, the United States is the only advanced economy in the world that doesn't have a baseline privacy statute. And I think that is tremendously disempowering. So I think what we should what we need to do is we need to advocate for actually protective privacy rules, not just ones that offer more illusions of, of control or or that purport to protect us from creepy privacy practices. But privacy against corporations, privacy against the government, I think a duty of data loyalty would be would be a great step. I think better tools for the Federal Trade Commission to deal with manipulative and abusive trade practices, private rights of action, but ultimately rules that promote human identity, political freedom, and consumer protection. All right, Ben, what do you think? Really interesting conversation. I mean, the thing that stuck out to me is... The act, that access to information is about power. Mm. Um, and so all of this is about power dynamics. Who controls the data um, and who's making money off the data? And I think that's really what we have to, to rethink is um, taking power away from companies and giving it back to consumers. Yeah. Having us be the, um, you know, determine the destiny of our own information, our own data. So I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. Our thanks to uh, Neil Richards for taking the time for us. Again, the book is titled Why Privacy Matters. Uh, do check that out. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and zero trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. our show we want to thank you all for listening the caveat podcast is proudly produced in maryland at the startup studios of data tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies our senior producer is jennifer iben our executive editor is peter kilpie i'm dave bittner and i'm ben yellen thanks for listening Rick here. 
At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.